Hello. We're back. Welcome to Don't Fuck With Ghosts. Episode two. This is so exciting. Um, thank you for your patience and waiting for the second episode. I got COVID, um, so that delayed it a little bit, but we're back. Better than ever, full of antibodies. Keeps the people on their toes, you Exactly. Know? Well, happy Easter, almost, yeah. to people who celebrate. Happy yeah. Passover. Mm-hmm. Happy holidays. Yeah. Um, it's the, the perfect time of year to talk about exorcisms, really, if yeah. you look at it in that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well... I think first we just want to say thank you to everyone who listened to our first episode. Yeah. I know, like, I thought that the only people who would listen would be, like, our friends and people who know us. But the fact that we have people on other continents who downloaded that episode is kind of wild. It's crazy. I wasn't expecting that. No, not at all. So thank you yeah. for listening. Yeah. T- thanks. To all your friends. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for the love. Thanks for listening to our chaotic ramblings. Um, and I think we're really excited to be here for episode two. Yeah. Um, but before we get into it, I realized last week that, or not last week, last time we recorded, we forgot to, uh, tell people what Blost Sisters are. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it is on our website when we, int- like we introduce ourselves on our website. Yeah. Cause meet the Blost Sisters. People are like, <laughs> if people are going to our website, they're probably like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so. Yeah. So it's a combination of... Two words? Three words? Three. Three words. <laughs> three words. This is about to get a little personal, so buckle yeah. up, folks. Yeah. It's a combination. <laughs> but this is like, knowing this is critical to understanding our relationship and part of why we're so close. Yeah. Um, it's a combination of the words blood, lice, and ghosts. <laughs> um, stay with us here. This is this is meaningful to us. Um, so we call ourselves Blow Sisters. We're connected in these three specific ways. That's part of why we're so close. Yeah, so uh, we refer to each other as Blow Sister, um, but Greer is still Blood Sister in my phone. I should probably update that, but yeah. that's where it started with yeah. Blood Sister. Senior mm-hmm. year of high school, we went to London together. We finagled our way onto a, a Latin <laughs> school trip, even though we no longer took Latin. Yeah, but we were the teacher's favorite students. Certainly. Oh, Kelly's some of them, I'm some sure. Them. Not, yeah. not for how well we understood Latin and no. performed in Latin exams. Not at all. <laughs> but she did. we did get her to write our college recommendations. Yeah. We made the class lively, <laughs> even if we weren't, you know, the best at understanding Latin at all. This is true. This is true. So, when we went to London, I <laughs> got my period. And I had gotten my period, like, a week and a half before, and I was like, yes, like, I'm not going to have my period while we're in London. But, you know, Joke's on me. when you hang out, out with somebody long enough, your cycles tend to sync up. And that's exactly what happened. Yep. I got my period in the middle of that trip because of Betsy. We became cycle sisters. Yeah. And I was pissed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's where that came from. And then, <laughs> uh, like, two years later, we both got, <laughs> we both got lice <laughs> within, like, a month or so of each other. But we didn't get it from each other because Greer was in Scotland at this point and I was in America. Yeah. And Greer got lice from a hostel in Ireland. Yeah, a hostel in Dublin. I'm a thousand percent certain that's where I got it. And it was was bad, guys. This was like two weeks left in my semester (laughs) abroad. My wallet had been fucking stolen. I had lice on my head. Like, it was... The whole thing was just such a mess. Yeah, yeah. So... She was texting about it and was obviously very upset. And I was like, I think I can tell you something that's going to make you feel better. And she's like, I highly doubt it, but go for it. And I told her that I had also gotten lice 
like a month before. I got lice over Thanksgiving. It was the same year that I saw my grandma as a ghost. Oh man, I never connected those two. No, it, it all happened in the same Thanksgiving trip. Oh my god, <laughs> you were busy. <laughs> it was it was um, an interesting time to say the least. <laughs> um, so I told her that and. It took away some of the embarrassment because lice is embarrassing, it especially so, to get as an adult. It was so fucking embarrassing. And I like <laughs> she was like I FaceTimed you while I was uh, dealing with it and like combing it. <laughs> that was one of my favorite FaceTimes of all time. <laughs> it was she a had a plastic bag over her head. Oh my God, it was like a whole thing. I had to go to the pharmacy to buy the lice comb and like they sent me to the children's section. And I was like, this is so <laughs> shameful. I have olive oil in my hair. It was a whole thing. Yeah, so that's, so, that's, so that's where the lice came from, and then we became Blyce sisters. Yeah. All right, all right, okay. Are you are you following? <laughs> all right, and then, I mean, this has happened well before we like officially came to Blow Sisters. I feel like where we have this eerie connection mm-hmm. of saying the same thing at the same time, wearing the same outfits, and that's probably because we're so close that we have similar tastes, and uh, we're th- we're often thinking the same thing. Yeah. Um. But we have this, like, connection, I feel. Yeah. And so um, that's where we're, like, ghost. It's like yeah. a, a supernatural Supernatural, connection. S- spiritual connection. Um, so then we added ghost into there, and now we're blessed sisters. <laughs> so. So there you go. Welcome to Don't, Don't Fuck With Ghosts. We are your blow sisters. Yes. I'm Betsy. I'm Greer. And, and yeah. Yeah. That, now you, now you that know con- some, convoluted story. Yeah, now you know some really intimate details about it only us. It only took us epi- two episodes to to unleash that information. Yeah, and now you'll never have to hear it again because you'll just have it saved in your brain. So there you go. But you will probably hear Blow Sisters a few times, so you might... Oh, yeah, just not the details, not the gory gory details. If you forget, just come back to episode (laughs) two if you really want to. Uh, Okay, well, um, I do have some ghost stories to share. This is actually exciting. It's our first listener stories. Thank you to those who shared. Very excited. Um, very excited. So the first one is from one of my favorite, most favorite coworkers. Um, it's about his time when he was in Afghanistan, actually. Eerie shit. Wow. Um, so yeah, let, I'll play that for you guys now. Hello, Betsy and Greer. Thank you so much for uh, letting me share this story on your podcast. Um <clears throat> I don't know if Betsy had said, but I'm one of her co-workers, but this story goes way back to uh, 2009, and it takes place uh, in Afghanistan. Um, back before I worked with Betsy, I was uh, in the military, uh, in the army, and um, stationed at down, in downtown Kabul at um, ISAF headquarters, uh, which eventually became known as Resolute Support Headquarters, but back then they they called it ISAF. And um, talked about something that happened uh, while I was out there um, to myself and the folks I was with. Um, and so, yeah, I'll get out, get into it. Um, so we were at ISAF, uh, and there was this other, I guess you can call it a camp or base that was located like a mile away, <clears throat> maybe a little less, um, uh, called Camp Eggers, um, and we we had the day off, um, and so we were going. You could walk um, to this place; it was it was close enough. Everything was kind of secure, and so we were going to walk to Eggers. Um, they had just because they had different, 
you know, places to eat, and we were tired of the food on ISAF. Just a little outing. And so we walked. Uh, we left ISAF. Um, there were about eight of us uh, walk, uh, walking down the streets uh, to get to Eggers um, when uh, along the way. Um, uh, an IED went off. We think it was from a, a suicide bomber um, explosion. Uh, I was briefly knocked unconscious with um, a bunch of shrapnel wounds in my legs and um, one in my, my head. And um, when I came to, the first responders were already starting to show up. And they uh, quickly medevaced us. Um, Put us on a, some helicopters, and um, by the time we were on the helicopters, I was I was either unconscious or I just don't remember it. Um, but they flew us um, to Bagram Air Base, which isn't that far from uh, Kabul, where they did uh, stabilized us and um, triaged us and did did surgery on myself and one of the other one of the other folks. Um, kept us kind of medically induced coma where um, they could, you know, keep doing surgeries they needed to do while, while uh, you know, keeping us sedated. Um, so the, oh goodness, I'd say like the week after that, uh, I don't remember much except drug-induced hallucinations, um, which were really vivid. And... Um, during that time, they were uh, they flew us from Afghanistan to Germany, uh, where there's another math big hospital, um, and from Germany, uh, they flew us to America. And when we got to America, they um, took us to it. Uh, it was the Naval Medical Center at Bethesda, which now I believe is known as Walter Reed. <clears throat> but back then it was just called the Naval Medical Center of Bethesda. And um, I was in the ICU um, for probably about three weeks, four weeks. I don't really remember. Um, but I remember. And this is uh, the ghost part. Um, as I was in the ICU, um, you know, you wake up, you're in and out of consciousness. Um, you have a breathing tube and a feeding tube and, you know, all these things hooked up to you. Um, and I would see like this, this figure that would stand in my doorway and it, I couldn't see a face or anything like that, more of just like a, a silhouette or an outline. And the, the figure had, um, pigtails. So, and at the time I didn't really, um, it didn't really compute, but this figure would, would stand there this, with the pigtails and, she would just be at the like between the foot of my bed and the door, um, and then just walk into the the bathroom that was in my room, and it kind of stressed me out um, because I, you know, I had the breathing tube in and I couldn't communicate because um, I thought there was someone in my room, and this happened a couple times, and uh, on one of the the final times I saw it. Um, I I was asking my my aunt was in the room and I, I asked her I was like can you please get that lady out of uh, out of my bathroom 
And she was so kind, my aunt, that she actually looked. Um, and she said, she said, there's, there's no lady in there. And I was like, okay, I feel better now. And so it didn't happen anymore after that. Um, and from Bethesda, after um, I was kind of stabilized, they moved me down to Richmond. Uh, there was a VA hospital there, and they had, because of the, the head injury and the leg injuries, they classified it as a polytrauma. Um, and Richmond had a polytrauma unit ward um, down there, so they sent me down to Richmond for another couple of months. Um, but while I was there, uh, one of the other guys who was injured with me, um, we, uh, we would hang out a lot um, and just, you know, talk. And uh, one, of, one day he was, uh, he was like, hey, man, I, I got to talk to you about something. And I said, sure, no problem. Uh, <clears throat> he's like, while I was in the, in the ICU, the intensive care, at, well, at um, the Naval Medical Center, Bethesda. He's like, I, I could have swore that I saw Schaefer, who was this girl who was with us when we got injured, who did not survive. Um, he's like, I could have swore I saw Schaefer in my room just staring at me. And it was at that moment that I, you know, I, I had seen, I'm pretty sure it was Schaefer, the same person, because Schaefer always had her hair in pigtails, I guess, because it's easier to manage. Um, your hair when they're like that, when it's like that, I don't know. Um, but that's how she always had her hairstyle. And I remember when he told me that, uh, it kind of freaked me out a little. Um, and I was like, I, I think I saw the same thing. And then we just both just kind of sat there um, and and kind of, you know, processed um, that, what we had seen. Uh, and from that point forward, I always, I always have decided that, you know, ghosts are real man um and sometimes before they they pass on they want to check in on on their friends and make sure they're okay <clears throat> and that's uh that's my quick little story um thanks again um for letting me share it um i love this podcast i hope you guys keep doing it uh thanks a lot wow wow <laughs> that's a I'm, lot to take in i know i'm i feel a little lost for words the that was truly tragic story, but mm. with an eerily like beautiful send off for her spirit. Yeah. I feel like that's stories like this are where it's, I just think it's nice to believe in ghosts and the supernatural because this is a story where she was so clearly looking after her friends and, you know, checking in on them. Like he said one last time before, Bef yeah, before you know, she moves on, moving on. And that's just, that's deeply sad, but so beautiful at the same time. Yeah. Wow. And we'll definitely make a believer out of you, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Especially after going through that whole ordeal. I know. You know? And then to have a friend who can corroborate the exact story that mm -hmm. you had. Like, like shared I'm experience. Sure that's so validating. Right. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sending that in. Yes, thank you. Um, he has a lot of more stories, too, oh, yes. so I'm sure we'll be hearing more from him. Perfect. He did it overnight at one of those, like... A, abandoned insane, oh. insane asylums. I don't know if it was Eastern State. Mm. I don't think it was. He's told me <laughs> multiple times, but <laughs> I have keep forgetting. Um, but he has some stories from that, too. Oh, that's incredible. Um, Amazing. Yeah. 
So thank you. That again. was a great first listener story. Great thank first you. listener yeah. story. We really appreciate it. And keep sending them, guys. We need more. <laughs> yeah, send them to our email, text us, call us, whatever. Just get in touch and we'll get it figured out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I have another one that's actually from my mom. And it is centered around my other grandma. So not the one that I saw at my uncle's house, another grandma. <laughs> um, for context, we moved in with her um, towards the end of her life when she was struggling with cancer. So my mom and the family moved in with her to, um, so she could take care of her. And that's, that's the context. So um, let me get the story up that I will read to you. She wrote it. So... Um, some, some of the way she wrote it is kind of funny, not like funny per se, just, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> well, your Betty's mom is, is an incredible writer. Like she's she is so good at writing, but she's also very direct. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> so I had been taking care of my mom known to our family as granny Betty, who was age 78 for almost a year during her cancer treatment. She lived with us in our home and it was our custom for my young daughter, Betsy, that's me, who was four and I to check on granny Betty each morning as part of our morning routine. Granny lived in our family granny suite in the basement, which is where I stayed. Remember? Mm -hmm. Yep. Like senior year of high school on mm -hmm. through college. And that's where my older brother stayed. And that's where Jonathan is now, my mm -hmm. little brother. So Everyone has stayed in that room, um, which I'll get into more. But anyway, um, she had her own entrance to the house and her own bathroom, as well as a fireplace, a pretty swanky setup. She was declining in health, but there was no indication that her death was imminent. We thought we had at least, at least a year or so left with her in our lives. Betsy was always very excited to get up and run immediately down upon waking up to check on Granny and help Granny with her morning routine. She would often do this ahead of me, and I would follow her down in a few minutes and make sure Granny had everything she needed. Granny and Betsy really bonded over their special time in the mornings. One particular night, I had a dream in which Granny Betty came to me and said very clearly, I am still in my room downstairs, but my spirit is gone, so do not let Betsy come down in the morning. Oh I am okay, and I am in a very good place, and I am no longer in pain, but I don't want her to be scared. Then all of a sudden, I sat straight up in my bed and looked at the clock, which showed around 3 a.m., which, if you know, is mm -hmm. the witching hour. I knew Betsy would be waking up around 6 a.m., so I made sure to get up ahead of her and tell her not to visit Granny because Granny needed to sleep in that day. We went about our morning prep, ate breakfast, and then I walked Betsy and her brother, age 7, to the bus stop. I came back home and immediately went to Granny's room and found her lying peacefully in her bed, but very much dead. See what I mean with the darkness? Oh my like, not passed on, not peacefully, you know, asleep shit. No, dead. <laughs> She was definitely no longer there in spirit. A chill went down my back as I realized she had really come to me as a spirit in my sleep to assure me that she was in a better place and also to keep Betsy safe from the fear of finding her dead. That Isn't is, that crazy? That is so, again, sad, but so beautiful at the same time. And she never told me this until I told her about the podcast and asked her if she had had any spirit experiences. I wonder if she just thought it maybe would be... Because that's, I'm sure, like, when you first read that, that's so much to take in. She might have just thought it was No, because she, she she didn't, I didn't read that for this first time. Like, she told me before, and then I was like, oh, please send that to me oh. an email. Oh. So she just casually told me, like, the last time I was over there for dinner before she. You know, and, moms yeah. do that. Moms do that. And I was like, mom, how have you oh never gosh. told me this before? Wow. Like, I don't know. 
Like, that's so her, though. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. That your grandma looked out for you like that. I know. That's very and, and my mom. Like, yeah. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but, like, I fully believe that people who pass on, like, like just what my, what my coworker said with his um, colleague who had died in the IED explosion and, like, how she visited them before mm-hmm. she passed on, I fully believe that spirits do that with their loved ones and often through dreams yeah because my other grandma my the one that I saw as a ghost she came she's come to me in dreams before and not like immediately after she died but like Mm -hmm. later on like to tell me that she's okay and like I I have this one specific dream that I remember where like I just we just hugged and cried and she told me she was okay yeah so I had a dream about um one of my grandpas and both of my grandpas passed away before I was born. And I didn't really know. I mean, like I know about them through the stories that my parents and aunts and uncles and cousins have shared, but I don't really know a whole lot about my grandpas. Cause you know, they <clears throat> passed before I was alive, but I had this dream when I was maybe, I don't know, I was young, but I had a dream where my grandpa um, on my mom's side. So my grandpa Clem was in the dream with me and we were, hanging out the two of us eating um circus peanuts which are those like orange kind of hard marshmallow candies shaped like peanuts they're like an old tiny candy and i'd never i'd never had a circus peanut in real life like i knew what they were because i like i could kind of pick figure out what it was from my dream in the context but i'd never had one before never really seen one in real life and i told my mom about this dream like years and years later and because I was just reminiscing about my grandparents and this dream came up about my grandpa. And my mom told me that um, circus peanuts were my grandpa's favorite candy or one of his favorite candies. Oh, my and God. I know. And I had always thought that that dream was just like a dream I had. And I kind of made up this scenario in my like dreamland. Yeah. But now like when she told me that, I was like, so that was 100 percent grandpa coming to visit me in a dream. Yeah. Because there's no... Like there's you wouldn't no have way known that. I would have known that. I, that yeah. would have been too random to dream that scenario. Yeah, and you said he passed before you were born, right? Yeah, he so you've never well, met you never met him. Yeah, he passed well before I was born. Wow. Um, but yeah, that's that's the only, wild. I know. Huh, I don't know that. I guess I don't know, I don't know how I that would either. come up in conversation. I know, but I'm surprised. <laughs> I tell you everything. Yeah, we talk about spiritual encounters a lot. So, yeah. well, you know, if it was were to come out anywhere, it would best to be on the podcast yeah, i guess exactly <laughs> but yeah that's the only dream i've had with a, a loved one who's passed on i've always yeah. wanted to have well a dream i've had where i it's definitely them visiting me i've had dreams mm-hmm. about my grandmothers before but but it like, felt like i'm just dreaming about it and right. not like they're coming with a message yeah whatever. yeah yeah so there you go yeah well that was really beautiful both of those stories were amazing yeah great first listener stories yeah i have another one but i'm gonna save it until okay. next next time okay cool because we need to spread them out because <laughs> guys please write in <laughs> this is a psa <laughs> oh okay. um i think we should just get, get into, into our it? stories now yeah sure. that's that's next on the outline so yeah. <laughs> um okay well i'm gonna go first this week since you went first last time um, and I'm going to be covering the real life story behind the film, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is based on the real life exorcism of a girl named Annalise Michelle. Now, for some background, this story is mainly centered on a trial. So I mentioned last time that this had to do with a Ouija board, but that was false. <laughs> I don't know where I got that um, 
it does not involve a Ouija board, but it it does involve um, a trial where her family and the priests who performed her exorcisms were put on trial for negligent homicide. Oh my god! Um, and the main the main argument between the the prosecution and the defense was was she actually possessed or was she mentally ill? And her legal guard well not legal guardians she wasn't a minor but her parents and the priests let her die from negligent from negligence. Wow. Which we'll, we will yes. get into all that. So, but let's start with, with Annalise Michelle. She was born Anna Elizabeth Michelle in 1952 in Bavaria, West Germany. And she and her three sisters were raised Roman Catholic and they were very devout. They attended mass twice a week. Oh. <laughs> and atoning for the sins of others was a constant theme instilled in her by her parents, like for her whole life. So she always was feeling this pressure to, to atone for people's sins. Catholic guilt. Catholic man. guilt. Catholic guilt. Like <laughs> to the next to the next level. Yeah. Like that's insane. <laughs> Not well, I don't want to say that's insane, but you know. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> um, so when she was sixteen, she exper- experienced her first convulsion. So, in another year, she experienced another convulsion. Um, and after this time, she went to see a neurologist who diagnosed her with temporal lobe epilepsy, which causes seizures, loss of memory, visual and auditory hallucinations, and can also call, cause Geschwind syndrome. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's marked by hyperreligiosity, which is a psychiatric disturbance in which a person experiences intense religious beliefs or episodes that interfere with normal functioning, which I didn't even know was like an actual like psychological condition. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of hyperreligiosity, but you know, I'm not Sounds a psychologist. Terrible. <laughs> Sounds horrible, but also interesting that they would mark a like a psychiatric episode with like religion. I know. That's very interesting. Um, but in 1970, she experienced a third seizure, and this was when they decided to prescribe her with um, an anti-convulsion drug, Dilantin, but this did not alleviate her condition. And after all of these convulsions, she began describing seeing devil faces at various mm-hmm. times of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she was then prescribed another drug. Aolept, again, don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it is similar to chlorpromazine, which is <laughs> <Love> u- <that> <laughs> it's used in the treatment of various psychoses, including schizophrenia. Oh, so boy. she's now being treated for anticonvulsions and schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. In 1973, she enrolled at the University of Würzburg, um, where her classmates described her as withdrawn and very religious. Um... When she prayed, she said she would hear voices telling her she was damned and would rot in hell. Oh, my God. And this is when she started believing that the devil was possessing her. And, of course, she developed depression. As yeah. You, as you would if you <laughs> are believing would. that you're being possessed by the devil, you know? Jeez. Oh, um, so, because she was dealing with all these, you know, really hard conditions <laughs> and d- in addition to depression she uh, spent time in a psychiatric hospital but this did not improve her health and her depression worsened mm-hmm. um, the drugs weren't working and she became increasingly frustrated with the medical intervention she had now been on pharmacological drugs for five years and, oh my God. and it, they weren't working she was still seeing devil fa- faces she was still hearing voices of what she presumed to be de- demons 
and like none of these drugs were working. So I don't I don't know if there's other drugs that treat the same conditions that Mm -hmm. she was being told she had or or why she was still being I don't I don't know why she was still being given them. Yeah, that's incredible to be on the same drug regimen for five years and have absolutely no change in your behavior and actually only have things worsen. I mean, yeah, that indicates that it's not a medical problem. No, there you go. Yeah. Okay. So she, as her, um, conditions worsened as the drugs weren't working, she became intolerant of Christian sacred places and objects like crucifix, like the crucifix. Um, and she went on a pilgrimage to San Damiano, which is in Italy with a family friend, um, where she refused to walk past a crucifix and refused to drink the water of a Christian holy spring. Oh, gosh. And there's a quote from one of the priests who conducted her exorcisms. Um, Annalise told me, and Frau Hein confirmed this, and I'm, I'm guessing Frau Hein is the family friend, that she was unable to enter the shrine. She approached it with the greatest hesitation, then said that the soil burned like fire, and she simply could not stand it. She then walked around the shrine in a wide arc and tried to approach it from the back. She looked at the people who were kneeling in the area surrounding the little garden, and it seemed to her that while praying, they were gnashing their teeth. She got as far as the edge of the little garden, and then she had to turn back. Coming from the front again, she had to avert her glance from the picture of Christ in the chapel of the house. She made it several times to the garden, but could not get past it. She also noted that she could no longer look at medals or pictures of saints. They sparkled so immensely that she could not stand it. Oh, my gosh. End quote. Which, the sparkling makes me think of Twilight. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but isn't that, like... Yeah. That's the kind of thing where I don't understand, like, if you're coming at it from a skeptic's perspective, like, like I, what else could cause that, you know? They create a psychological disorder <laughs> that... Religiosity. ...is tied to religious episodes. <laughs> there you go. I think that's bullshit, personally, but, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so after all of this happened, she and her family became convinced that she was being possessed by a demon. And this is when they began consulting priests, but most of the ones that they approached refused to perform exorcisms, encouraging the continued medical treatment and emphasizing that exorcisms required the permission of the bishop. So that to me sounds like they were lazy and didn't want to go through the process of getting a bishop to approve it. Yeah. Can I ask what year is this happening again? The seventies. Seventies. Yeah. In Germany. Okay. In Bavaria, which was, like, high percentage of Catholics. Interesting. Yeah. I would feel like if I was a priest and there was, like, legitimate evidence to prove that somebody was being possessed, that would be a priority. I wouldn't want to shrug it off. Yeah. So I, I guess, but at that point, they hadn't been super close to what was going on with her, so they weren't, like, fully aware of everything going on. That's and they were true. probably, like, they just didn't want to get into it. Yeah. Um, but, again, her condition only worsened. And so let's talk about a little bit, like, how she would act. She would rip her clothes off her body, compulsively performed up to 400 squats a day. Squats? Squats! What? (laughs) Sorry, it's not funny. I don't know if she thought that this was going to rid the demons of her somehow. I I don't know. Wow. Um, At one point, she crawled under a table and barked like a dog for two days. She ate spiders and coal. She bit the head off a dead bird, oh. and she licked her own urine from the floor. Oh, no. So at this point, she's, like, just totally animalistic oh. and what appears to be demonic possession, yeah. in, uh, if you've watched any yeah. sort of demonic <laughs> possession film in your life. Oh, yeah. Um, so 
they kept looking for priests, obviously, and they eventually found one named Ernst Alt, who believed in her possession, stating she didn't look like an epileptic in later court documents. Um, he never saw her having seizures, and he urged the local bishop to allow an exorcism. In a letter to Alt in 1975, Annalise wrote, quote, I am nothing. Everything about me is vanity. What should I do? I have to improve. You pray for me, end quote. And also once told him, quote, I want to suffer for other people, but this is so cruel, end quote. Oh. So again, with that theme of atoning for sins, mm-hmm. like she's trying to push through it, obviously, but like there's only so much you can take from the devil or the any- devil. Mm-hmm. We'll get into it, but there's multiple. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, September of that same year, Josef Stangl. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but, you know, it sounds German to me. <laughs> um, he granted the priest Arnold Renz permission to exercise according to the Ritual Romanum of 1614, but ordered to them to conduct these exorcisms in total secrecy. Wow. Yeah. So I think at this point in time... Um, exorcisms were less frequently um, granted and, like, were almost taboo. And you, you know what? I wonder, because I know after the Exorcist movie premiered yeah. in 73, mm-hmm. there were so many more people requesting exorcisms, yeah. so I'm sure the church was like, yep, I, we're oh, cracking down. Look at that, my next note. By the 1960s, <laughs> exorcisms were very rare among Catholics, but a rise in movies and books like The Exorcist in the early 1970s caused a renewed interest in the practice. There you go. Yep. So they were just getting inundated. Yeah. And, and a lot of them were, you know, mental health issues and mm-hmm. that they just like to chalk up to demonic possession so you know it's 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 a slippery slope you have to be discerning and i'm sure that's what they were doing yeah so over the next 10 months this is this is crazy following the bishop's approval alt and renz conducted 67 exorcisms each lasting up to four hours on her yes oh my gosh this girl endured 67 exorcisms all for four hours i mean like uh talk about just the the faith the priests had that they were doing what was right and that it was going to eventually work because mm-hmm. that is unbelievable well okay so i'll so in the movie in and emily rose and i didn't i didn't see anything about this in in the sources i i read about annalise michelle so i don't know if this actually came up in in the trial um but in the movie they talked about how the drugs she was on was causing her brain activity to be to be lower, keeping her in a dem- in, in a possessed state. Because she was easier to control. I'm guessing. Yeah, her brain isn't. So the, so in the movie, the the defense was claiming that she died because they kept her on these medicines. Wow. Because she she could not become unpossessed because of her brain activity being altered by the the pills. I would have never... That's something I never would have even considered. No. And again, again, I don't know if, the, if the, that was actually brought up in, in the real trial, but that's mm-hmm. what they discussed in, in, the, in the movie. Um, so through these exorcisms, unseen forces would throw Annalise to the ground and like hold her down. And when they would throw her down, it was usually head first and it would give her black eyes. So let me show you some pictures of her. That's that's her. What looks at like her first communion? Oh yeah, the little child bride. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, Sorry. child bride. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then this is her when she was in college. Oh, she's cute. Yeah. Um, and then this is her <gasps> with her black eyes, oh like, during God. the exorcisms. She, Isn't that... She looks like Reagan, the, the little girl in she the movie does. She does. She does. It's, like, really it's terrifying to see, like, her before picture and then, oh. like, her after all of the exorcisms. It's terrifying and, like... She was going through so much pain. We'll post these on um, Instagram as well, so you guys can see. Yeah. Wow. I was uh, not expecting that. No. That looks like stage makeup. It does. It's so dark. It's like circles completely around circles eyes. around her eyes. Oh, my God. You know who she also kind of looks like? Who? Joey King. Oh, my God. She kind of does. Yeah. The act. <laughs> or No, she kind of looks like when she played Ramona. <laughs> yeah, she kind of does. Uh, wow. All right. Okay, anyway. Uh, so... She would also perform up to 400 genuflections, which is kneeling in prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. yeah, so th- squatting. through, yeah, she would be squatting, but she would also be doing her genuflections. And in, in the movie, I don't, again, don't know if this is how it went in, in real life, but she would like throw her knees on the ground, not just like oh kneel, God. you know, but like throw, but also doing 400 regular genuflections per exorcism would also be a lot. And eventually she ruptured the ligaments in her knees. I mean, that's just so sick because that's, that's desecrating like a holy act. Yeah. It's like mocking it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So eventually her mom had to help her kneel in the final exorcism rituals because her knees were broken. So you, I think there's a picture. Um, yeah. See, (gasps) see her helping her. My God. Yeah. I mean, guys, this, like these pictures are so unsettling. Mm hmm. Wow. Yeah, so she eventually in these exorcisms, because, you know, in an exorcism, the exorcist is trying to get the demon to name themselves so that they can send them back to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and Annalise revealed that she believed she was possessed by six demons. Oh, my God. Lucifer, Cain, Judas, Hitler, oh. and Nero. Oh. Oh, and Fleischmann, who was apparently a disgraced priest who I think was from, like, the 1600s. God. Yeah. And in the, oh. that's, like, one thing that really lined up with the movie is that, like, she she names all of those those demons, and then at the end it's really chilling. She's like, and Lucifer, the devil in the flesh. Oh, my God. And it's so scary. That's really terrifying. Um, but they would all of these different demons would fight each other for the power over Annalise's body, communi- communicating from her mouth with a low growl. They would argue with each other, with Hitler saying, people are so stupid as pigs. They think it's all over after death. It goes on. Well, Oh, my God. <laughs> this is there's, there's, chills. There's a lot of people that know it goes on. Hitler, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> oh and God. Judas would say, Hitler was nothing but a big mouth and who had no real say in hell. Oh, my God. What? Hell drama. Hell drama. <laughs> um, Annalise would frequently talk about dying to atone for the wayward youth of the day and the apostate priests of the modern church. So, again, with atoning for sins. Mm-hmm. Um, she slowly stopped eating as she thought it would weaken the demons and, and started to suffer from malnutrition. But during the, so like, she's very weak at this point, you know, she's not eating, Mm -hmm. barely drinking anything, but during the exorcisms, she's still showing great strength against, against the priests during the exorcism rituals and she had to be restrained. Yeah. So like scientifically she shouldn't be able to do that. How else? 
Because there's six demons inside <laughs> of her. That's how. The strengths of six men. Yeah. I mean, nothing else can explain it, honestly. Yeah. And unfortunately, eventually, Annalise succumbed to her malnutrition and passed away, oh. weighing 66 pounds. <gasps> she was 23. Oh, my God. So after she died, the state prosecutor maintained that Annalise's death could have been prevented had she continued to receive medical treatment. In 1976, the state charged Michelle's parents and the priests, Ernst Alt and Arnold Renz, with negligent homicide. And her story becomes national news, and there's a media frenzy. Mm-hmm. Um, and doctors testify that Annalise was not possessed, stating that this was a psychological effect because of her strict religious upbringing and her epilepsy. Again, with this like hyper religiosity, I, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't either. Like you might as well just claim that she has schizophrenia, and that like, yeah, bringing religion into it doesn't really make much sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Richard Roth was asked by Alt to be present at her exorcism for medical help and allegedly told her, quote, there is no injection against the devil on Elise, end quote. Jeez. So they had a doctor there. Right. Who acknowledged what was going on. Yeah. So clearly, you know, not all (laughs) doctors, not all doctors, (laughs) (laughs) you know, if I feel like that these doctors, like all these doctors are skeptics who weren't like they weren't in the front lines of like seeing what she was going through every day mm-hmm. they weren't present at these exorcisms seeing what was happening you know they're just skeptics who say you know demons aren't real possessions not real like she's clearly a very sick girl yeah you know um but you know there there was a doctor present there and if they had also been present there they there's a good chance that they couldn't you know chalk it up to anything actually medical yeah especially the strength that she had when you said she was yeah. not eating and at the end of her life weighed 66 pounds yeah I mean, there's no way she should be able to like fight against grown men grown men and probably her, both her parents mm-hmm. like four four people should not be like be able to restrain or should be able to restrain yeah. a 66 pound girl yeah you shouldn't need four people to do that and yet she did. yeah So the priests testified in their own case using a recording of the exorcism to try to justify their actions, but were ultimately found guilty of manslaughter resulting from negligence and were sentenced to six months in jail. Mm. But the sentencing was reduced to three years probation and a fine. And for the parents, they were exempt from punishment as they had, quote, suffered enough, which is apparently a criterion in German penal law. Interesting. Or at least it was in the 70s. Wow. I mean, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. They had to watch their daughter go through 67 exorcisms and suffer from being possessed by six demons and then die from it. Yeah. I'd say that's enough. That's enough. Yeah. Um, Two years after the trial, the parents asked the authorities for permission to exhume Annalise's remains um, because they were told if her body hadn't decayed, that would indicate supernatural occurrences as far as how her her death happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Excuse me, I'm burping. <laughs> um, the official reports state that the body bore signs of consistent deterioration. However, the accused priests were discouraged from seeing the remains, and Arnold Wren stated that he had been prevented from entering the mortuary at all. Wow, suspicious. Suspicious indeed. Very suspicious. Suspicious indeed. Overall, the number of officially sanctioned exorcisms decreased in Germany due to this case. In spite of Pope Benedict the 16th? Yep. <laughs> there's, my, there's my Latin coming Latin in. Latin knowledge. 
Um, Pope Benedict XVI's support for wider use of it compared to Pope John Paul II, who in 1999 made the rules stricter, involving only rare cases. Hmm. So apparently it was easier to get an exorcism back then than now, I guess. I don't know how um, Francis feels about them. Do you? I actually don't. I have, I'm going to talk about like the bureaucracy of getting an exorcism in DC, Oh. Um, but I don't know how Francis feels. I don't know. Okay. All right. Um, so, and then weird side note on June 6th, 2013, a fire broke out in the house where Annalise Michelle lived. And although the local police said it was arson, some locals attribute it to the exorcism case. I would believe it. But anyway, Annalise became an icon for some Catholics who felt modern secular interpretations of the Bible were distorting the ancient supernatural truth it contains. Mm. And her grave is now a pilgrimage site. And people wow. still like people still come from all over the world to pay their respects. Wow, is she buried in her home? In her I, I think she's in Bavaria. Wow. I believe so. Um, yeah. Um, in pop culture, the exorcism of Emily Rose came out in 2005, which was like the first major interpretation of her case mm-hmm. as far as like film and, and the media go. Um, Requiem came out a year later in 2006, which is a German drama film about her case. Okay. And then Annalise, the Exorcist tapes came out in 2011, which is a found footage film. Ooh. Never seen that. We should watch that. I love found footage. I love a found footage film. Um, Her case was on BuzzFeed Unsolved, Supernatural. The episode was called The Chilling Exorcism of Annalise Michelle. And she's been mentioned in songs from several different rock bands and artists. Wow. And, of course, she's been mentioned in plenty podcasts. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I... I'll, I'll give my own little opinion yeah. on the exorcism of Emily Rose. Go for it. Um, it didn't scare me. Maybe I, it takes a lot to scare, <laughs> to scare me. Um, you know me, I, I need a jump scare. I need suspense. It didn't, I mean, there was some, like, it, it did show her seeing devil faces, like, in every, anyone she passed. Mm-hmm. So that That's was a little scary. jarring, you know, that happened suddenly. I was also watching it during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that probably you know, made me feel a little bit more comfortable. If I had seen it earlier in my life when I was younger, that probably would have been made it a lot scarier. Yeah. Um, I think the thing with exorcism movies too, is that there's only so much variation you can have on that kind of story. So it's, it's, I feel like it's hard to be really surprised for an, during an exorcism movie. Just because that's true. That's true. But yeah, there was some, definitely some jarring scenes and shots. Um, but overall, I thought it was a great movie. Like, I thought it was well done. It followed a lot of the different events that happened through the real story of Annalise Michelle. Basically, the only thing they changed was her name and where she came. Like, in the movie, she was a girl from America in modern times versus Germany in, in the 70s. Um, they changed her name, but pretty much everything else was, was the same. I thought it was really well done, and I would I would encourage anybody to watch it you know, unless demons and exorcisms, you know, trigger you <laughs> because that does occur. Yeah. Um, but great movie. And with that, she's still an inspiration for some people, Annalise Michelle, but others still believe her story is one of people who should have known better than to allow a mentally ill woman to die. 
Mm-hmm. So there's still a wide debate over over her case. Um, but yeah, that's the chilling story of Annalise Michelle. That was great. I knew yeah. nothing about that. And it's funny because I've heard that movie title for so long. Oh, yeah. Me and too. I just never really thought to watch it. But now I kind of want to. You should. It's really yeah. good. And maybe if you watch it at night, it'll be scarier for you <laughs> and you'll enjoy it more. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good that you still thought it was so well done, even if it wasn't the scariest movie yeah. you've ever seen. That means it's a good movie regardless. Yeah. And the acting was amazing. And oh, and the, the woman who plays the defense lawyer is Laura Lenny. Oh, my God. And she's amazing. She's great. Wow. So. Nice. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, you should. Cool. Well, that's it. That's it for me. I'm going to move on to my story. I'm talking about the true story behind the book and the movie um, of the iconic Exorcist. So. The film premiered in 1973. It was based on the book by the same title, which was published in 1971. And the author who wrote the novel was inspired by the story of the exorcism of 14-year-old Roland Doe. So I'm going to talk about his story. And then after that, I'm going to touch on the making of the film, why it's one of my favorites and why it's so personally iconic to me. Um and talk about how the film was received by the public because this the exorcist was kind of like the first film of its kind to hit theaters and it really deeply impacted the american public in a way that um i don't think a scary movie has really ever again just because it was so the first of its kind when it came out i feel like it was a turning point for horror movies in general yeah because for sure it was the first, like, demonic possession movie, mm-hmm, or, like, at sure. least the most popular yeah, one. Yeah, definitely the biggest one. Definitely the first one people think of when they think of demonic possession in film. Yeah, and it came out in a time where, you know, there was a lot of religious conservatism, and so this kind of story was very, very terrifying and very real for a really large portion of people. Um, so before I get into this, I just want to note that When I was doing my research, a lot of the articles that I found had, like, sort of differing minor details in terms of maybe, like, specific things that happened with Roland um, or actions that were reported. But overall, like, the trajectory of the story that I'm about to tell is accurate, and it was reported the same across all the articles that I found. There were just, like, little minor details that differed from here to there. And that's just because there, there wasn't a whole lot of documentation on this case Because it took place in 1949, I think this kind of thing was extremely taboo back then, so there just wasn't a lot put out into the public about what happened with little Roland. So I just want to say that um, if other people who are listening are familiar with this case and you have heard a different version of it, like I acknowledge that, um, but I just did my best to put together what I could find to that made you know a coherent, straightforward story to share with you guys today. So. The story starts in the late 1940s in a suburb called College City in Maryland. Um, And there isn't a whole lot of information out there about Roland's family and personal life. Like, I'm not sure if he had siblings. No articles ever mentioned them, so he may have been an only child. Um, I believe they were a German Lutheran family. So they had a religious background, and Roland had a religious upbringing. But I don't really have many details to share beyond that. Um, but at the time that this story starts, Roland is like 13, 14 years old, and he is grieving the loss of his very beloved Aunt Harriet, who had taught him about spiritualism. 
um, including teaching him how to use a Ouija board. So, Mm-mm-mm. yeah, there you go. Um, she gifted him one for his birthday prior to her passing. So happy birthday! Yeah, so really. Here's a gate to hell. <laughs> so yeah, Roland kind of had dipped his toes into the world of the occult and the supernatural um, before Aunt Harriet left this world and passed away. So shortly after Aunt Harriet died in 1949, Roland and his family began experiencing some weird things in their house. Um, Roland heard scratching and rattling noises coming from under the floorboards and in the walls in his room. Um, And the articles I found made it clear that the family knew this wasn't mice or rats. You know, mice, when they run around, they have a specific noise. I know. Um, But this was like described as like fingernails scratching like people hiding under you know the bed in the walls that that kind of lovely thing mm. um and then okay this one i'm gonna approach this one with a little healthy skepticism because the family reported water dripping inexplicably from all over the house which <laughs> just call it water I, you know as someone i had some like water damage in my apartment the previous year oh yeah so i'm like this one, I'll be like, okay, I don't know if this one was because the demon, like y'all just might've been living in an old house, but they said there was water dripping all over from pipes and explicably from other, you know, walls in their house. I'm going to be a skeptic on that one, but you know, the rest of the things that happened make me a believer. Roland's mattress would move on its own inexplicably, which you see happen during the exorcism, um, in the movie, the exorcist, Apparently, the family had a picture of Jesus that would shake violently on the wall, which, there you go. That's Mm. kind of the, like, that's the biggest clue. Um, And heavy furniture would topple over on its own in their house with either nobody else in the room or nobody near the furniture in the room. So, all these scary things start happening after Aunt Harriet passes away. So, Roland's family tried to contact the spirit or spirits that they suspected were in the house to try to get them to stop, um, but it only made things worse. I feel like that, if you're not specifically trained in, like, contacting demons, I feel like that can sometimes only make things worse. Yeah. You're talking to them, you're sort of inviting them into your life, into conversation. Mm-hmm. So they were having these seances, I guess is what you would call them. The room reportedly filled with icy gusts of wind. Um, they asked Aunt Harriet to knock, or they asked the spirit to knock three times if it was dead Aunt Harriet, the room becomes icy cold, and then they hear three knocks coming from somewhere in the room. That's not Harriet. I know. That's what I'm saying. My two cents is that I think this demon is pretending to be Aunt, was pretending to be Aunt Harriet to yeah. make them feel... They also like, shouldn't have asked for three knocks because apparently when bad spirits or demons do the three knocks, it's mocking the Holy Trinity. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That's the same thing with the witching hour at 3 a.m. It's a it's mocking the Holy oh. Trinity. Oh, that's really scary. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I so we're in agreement. This demon was probably pretending to be dead on Harriet because, like, why would the spirit of a beloved family member torture your family in these, like, really frightening ways? Mm-hmm. Unless Aunt Harriet was, like, trying to, she was evil and she was trying to open some portal before she died and gave Roland this Ouija board so she could haunt them in the afterlife. I don't know. I don't, but I am, you know, this was definitely not Aunt Harriet. So after they do these seances and make contact with this demon slash demons, 
Roland says that he could hear somebody walking around his room at night. And in the morning, he would find scratch marks on his mattress, like ripping through the cloth on his mattress. And eventually he was finding scratch marks all over his body. Um, The family is freaking out. They bring in holy water and they bring in blessed candles to their home. They even tried to have Roland baptized, but he allegedly responded to that with a furious rage. Hmm. So, you know, we're seeing a pattern here with your story. It's the same, like visceral rejection of anything religious, specifically Catholic or specifically Christian. Yeah. Um, Iconography and imagery just, he's turned off from it. Um, so the family's efforts to make all this stop are basically proving fruitless at this point. They called a local minister who observed Roland overnight. Um, I think he was a Lutheran minister. They called him. He observed Roland overnight and saw many of the claims I just mentioned above for his own eyes. So he saw the furniture moving, the scratches on his body, the bed shaking. And the minister's like, all right, you guys need to get in contact with the Jesuit priests because like, they're going to be the ones who can handle this, like not me. Um, so a local Catholic priest named Father E. Albert, Albert Hughes agreed to perform an exorcism in February of 1949 after getting permission from uh, the bishop. So this is, this is when I looked up, like, what do you do in this day and age if you want to get an exorcism from the Catholic Church? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's uh, not simple. The nice thing is you don't have to be Catholic to request an exorcism. Oh, that's good. That just makes me hopeful if, you know, one day I need one. (laughs) I know. So if you want to get an exorcism and you live in Washington, D.C., for example, you can go to the Archdiocese of Washington's website. <laughs> they have step-by-step instructions on how to request an exorcism. Oh. So you have to set up an appointment with a priest who will evaluate the situation. He will pray over the, the individual who you believe to be possessed by the devil or multiple demons um, and determine basically if they're fit for an exorcism. And kind of like you said, the church has to be really discerning with these cases because they can't just give an exorcism to anybody who might potentially be experiencing I wonder what the parameters are like how can the priest tell if you know if somebody is claiming to be possessed by the devil who's honestly just schizophrenic Mm -hmm. how how do they discern well I mean they do require proof that medical and psychiatric evaluation produced no answers or solutions mm. to the person's behavior. But I still am curious about like how they, cause I feel like, you know, medical evaluations can be incorrect. If yeah. you see somebody who maybe isn't a specialist or if they just get it wrong. Yeah. Um, like if they're just on the wrong medication or something. Yeah, exactly. So I do, I mean, I also wonder like how they make these determinations. Yeah. It could be similar to like what Annalise Michelle was going through where mm-hmm. if she's on the, on these drugs that are supposedly supposed to have this effect and they're having zero effect. Yeah. Then it's got to be something else. Yeah. That's probably true. Um, so you have to show proof that you've had medical psychiatric evaluations and they're providing no relief, no answers or solutions to your behavior. Um, and then if the priest determines that this person qualifies, they are put in touch with the archdiocese exorcist team. And then you have to like fill out some forms. So there's like a bureaucracy involved with getting an exorcism. And I, I like couldn't figure out how long this whole process takes, but I'm sure this is not like a quick turnaround. I'm sure at this point you're waiting weeks, if not months. I mean, the Catholics and the priests are not very tech forward. Like I have a friend who's getting married in the Catholic church in November and 
their emails with the priests. Like, it takes so long to just email with these, like, priestly men. So I'm sure (laughs) getting an exorcism, like, takes a lot of time. Anyway, that's, if you want to get an exorcism in D.C., that's how you do it. So, moving back to Roland's story, during his exorcism, his first exorcism, Father Hughes had to strap him to the mattress um, to begin to recite prayers because Roland was so... You know, physical and exhibited this similar sort of like mystifying strength. I mean, he was 13 or 14 years old. He was a child. Um, but this exorcism attempt had to be cut short because Roland pulled out a spring from the mattress and slashed <gasps> the priest across the shoulder. So the, the priest was like, I have been physically injured. Like, we're going to stop this right now. And then a few days after this, Deep red scratches began appearing all over Roland's body, and some of the scratches began to form the word Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, which the family took as a sign to take Roland to their relatives in St. Louis, Missouri, to continue this treatment, continue these exorcisms, continue trying to figure out what was going on with him. So the family goes out to St. Louis, and Roland has a cousin who's attending St. Louis University, and she or he put the family in touch with two university priests, Father Walter H. Harrelin and Father William Bodern, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing correctly, but those two got permission from the university to perform a second exorcism on Roland. And I think because this is very, very pre the exorcist, I mean, this is what inspired the exorcist. I couldn't find a lot of information on what it was like to request an exorcism in the 1940s, but my gut tells me it was perhaps a bit easier because there wasn't, this whole sort of exorcism panic of the the 70s that then inundated the church with requests. So it seemed like they didn't have any issues with getting these exorcisms approved. So uh, the two priests begin the second round of exorcisms on little Roland. How old is he at this point? Um, this is, it's only, the whole ordeal only lasted for, I think, three or four months. So he's still just 13 or 14. 13 or 14, yeah, he's okay. Yeah, a little kid. A um, baby. Yeah, a little baby. Um, but yeah, this story is... I mean, miles and miles shorter than what Annalise had to go through. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. hers was several years. Yeah, exactly. So during the second exorcism, the word hell appears on Roland's flesh. I know. Does that happen in the exorcist? I can't remember. No. Okay. I don't think she has any words that come up on her. But she does have the scratches. I remember that. She has scratches. I don't think any words come up. Um, But the word hell appears on Roland's flesh his body had violent and uncontrollable spasms, and he punched one of the priest's nose so hard that it broke. Um, it took four men to physically restrain and calm Roland, again, which, like, 14-year-old boy. And I'm sure not... he's not, like, physically fit at, oh, this at this point if he's going not. through demonic possession. Exactly. So, yeah. similar thing. The unexplained strength. I know. It takes four people to restrain this child, who you're right is probably very weak at this point. Um But then interestingly, during periods of lucidity, Roland would describe himself as fighting this huge red demon who was like slimy and felt really powerful. And Roland said that this demon was trying to prevent him from escaping from a big fiery pit. And Roland would also speak in Latin, which you and I know is challenging, if not impossible, because Latin is a dead language and there's no way this little child would Knew have known it. Latin. Yeah. And it, he definitely wasn't speaking gibberish that they just decided was Latin because you have two Catholic Jesuit priests there who, like, I'm pretty sure this is 
pre-Vatican II, so this is when masses were recited in Latin, so these priests were able to confirm this child was speaking Latin fluently, which there's no explanation for that. Um, Roland would enter a trance-like state and start making sounds in a low, guttural voice, which is really similar to what Reagan, the little girl, does in the Exorcist movie, which is incredibly disturbing. Um, and at one point during this weeks-long ordeal, a red X appeared in scratch marks on Roland's chest, which the priest interpreted to be the Roman numeral for the number 10. Mm. And they thought that this meant that Roland was possessed by 10 different demons. Mm. But there wasn't, from what I could find, there wasn't any proof of this. I think it was just an assumption that they made. Um, like there was no record of Roland saying, like listing out the names of the demons like Annalise did. Um, they just kind of made that assumption. But I actually looked up the meaning of the number 10 in numerology. And on one site, I found it just describing 10 as being a divine number. 10 means a return to unity or the fusion of being and non-being, which this might be a bit of a reach, but I just, I think it's interesting. You're thinking about being and non-being. You have Roland, this like real child, physical child, and the non-being, these sort of like bodiless demonic entities coming together fusing into him as one so that might be a bit of a reach but i thought it was relevant so the number 10 i think meant a lot of things in this scenario and even if it didn't mean he was possessed by 10 demons there was still a massive red x on his chest which is uh scary yeah because <laughs> if you put an x over something when you're like this thing is eliminated so that's um, true <laughs> yeah so the priests continued valiantly through the night um but roland's condition had reached a new unhealthy level he had urinated all over himself and in his bed um which happens um interpreted a bit differently but that happens in the exorcist and you said also happened in Annalise's case it seems like yeah urination yeah is like a component in a lot of these sort of exorcism stories I'd love to understand more about why that is and what that could mean but he is maybe it just it's like their way of showing that he doesn't have control over his yeah. own body yeah that would make a lot of sense and it's also like i feel like to like pee yourself is there's a lot of shame associated with that um so it's probably just a, like a, a petty embarrassing thing too it's yeah. like an extra little like dig in your side from this demon who's destroying you he's like i'm gonna make you pee yourself now because it's mm -hmm. embarrassing um so the family is like, all right, this urine thing, this is this is different. In some ways, this feels different than everything else he's gone through. Um, they decided to take him to get medical help. Um, they rushed him to the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis. And this is where things take a turn, shockingly, for the better. Um, on April 18th, the Monday after Easter, Roland awoke with seizures, uh, yelling at the priest, saying that Satan would always be with him. Um, and in response, the priest laid rosaries, crucifixes, holy relics, um, holy medals all over Roland's body to kind of counteract the devil inside of him. And at 10.45 p.m. that same night, the priest called on St. Michael the Archangel to expel Satan from Roland's body. And what's crazy is seven minutes later, and I don't know if there's significance to the number seven. I should have looked that up. I feel like there is. But seven minutes later, Roland awoke from his trance and just simply said, he's gone. And strange occurrences and behavior ceased from that moment on, and Roland went on to live a normal life. And I'm pretty sure he passed away in 2020. Really? There wasn't a whole lot of information, because his identity had been kept secret for so long, um, because it became public knowledge that this case 
um, inspired The Exorcist, both the novel and the movie. And Roland is actually a, um, it was like a false name that had right. been, so his, the boy's real name, I don't believe was Roland. And there wasn't a whole lot of information on the life he went on to lead afterwards, but I'm pretty sure one of the sources I said, I read said he passed away either in 2020 or in like very recent years. And he like went on to live a normal life. If you wow. can imagine. Well, I hope he went to therapy. I don't know if they were going to therapy in the photos. Oh, they definitely weren't. <laughs> well, you know, as normal as it could be, I guess. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's the kind of thing that you just, like, your brain just represses it. That's true. Well, I mean, in the actual, or in The Exorcist, she didn't remember anything mm, from her possession. Yeah. So maybe it was something similar. Yeah. I hope, I for his sake, I, know. I hope so. Oh, my God. Um, but yeah, that is the true story behind The Exorcist. And then in 1971, author William Blatty wrote the novel The Exorcist, which he loosely based around Roland's case. He was inspired to write this novel when he heard about the case while he was a student at my alma mater, Georgetown University. That's part of why Go this, Hoyas! Go Hoyas! <laughs> that's part of why this story is so special to me. Because, yeah. I mean, I that it is personally interesting and scary to me because like being raised catholic like i said in the last episode that instills a really healthy fear of the devil specifically in demonic possession so i i personally believe something like the exorcist can happen i mean i believe the cases that we both talked about today really happened um but also the story was centered around georgetown it was filmed on campus and in the neighborhoods so it's it's not a comforting story, but watching it is comforting in a sense because I can recognize so much of the campus and like I, you know, I've walked through there. Um, We've so. gone to the Exorcist steps, right? Oh, yeah. I feel like we have. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna talk about those too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so the author used diaries kept by the priest who performed Roland's exorcisms as source material and inspiration for his novel. And the Exorcist stayed on the bestseller list for 54 weeks, and it was eventually adapted into the iconic in timeless horror film, um, which used the same title. And the exorcist story, which again is loosely based on Roland's case. So a lot of the details are different. Um, it takes place in Georgetown, which is a neighborhood in Washington, DC. And it focuses its story on a 12 year old girl named Reagan. So different gender, but same age range, you know, Reagan and Roland, I'm sure. You know, oh, I didn't even think about that. I didn't think about it either until literally right now. But yeah. Reagan and Roland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, same age, so just a few details there were swapped. But in the Exorcist novel and in the movie, after Reagan plays the Ouija board in her, <laughs> yes, I know, in her basement. When will people learn? I know. Well, she's using her. This is also she's using her Ouija board to talk to her imaginary friend called Captain Howdy. Um, shocking. Captain Howdy is the devil. And this imaginary <laughs> friend is not an imaginary friend. It's the devil. Um, so after this happens, she begins experiencing strange and scary things. Um, and I'm just going to give a, a brief overview of this movie. If you haven't seen it by now, like, I'm sorry, I'm not spoiling anything. This movie is 50 years old. Um, <laughs> so sorry, but Reagan's mother who is an atheist in the film, quickly turns to a Jesuit priest on Georgetown's campus for help after medical tests and intervention um, and, like, scans and stuff basically prove useless in helping Reagan. She's not getting better. She's getting worse. So the Jesuit priests perform the exorcism in Reagan's childhood bedroom, and it's really 
fucking scary. I mean, I think in terms of horror movies today, The Exorcist isn't scary just because of how old it is. The if the effects aren't as realistic, um, but what happens is still scary nonetheless. I mean, Reagan's head spins all the way around. It cracks her neck and her spine. She projectile vomits in the priest's face. Her body levitates above the bed and is thrashed around against her. Um, out of her control she speaks in latin there you go just like roland did and she imitate she's able to imitate or the demon i guess is able to imitate the voices of the priest's loved ones to manipulate them so she at one point speaks um, using the voice of the priest's deceased mother to manipulate him into stopping exercising her um in an incredibly disturbing scene. She masturbates quite violently with a crucifix. I remember that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really, really bad. Um, there's her furniture that gets hurled across the room. Uh, the room becomes icy cold. It's it's really awful. So they take a lot of liberties with Roland's story. Um, and obviously a lot of the things that Reagan experiences in the movie are heightened and dramatized for, you know, theatrical effect. Um, but it's it's really, really terrifying stuff to watch. And at the end of the movie, one of the priests commands the demon to possess him instead in order to save Reagan. And as the demon takes over his body, uh, the priest throws himself out of Reagan's bedroom window and plummets to his death down what are now known as the exorcist steps, uh, which is a 75-step concrete stairway in the heart of Georgetown. Um, And during filming, the townhouses that surrounded um, the set um, for this scene and the exorcist steps actually would charge student five bucks students five bucks to watch the stuntman from their rooftop and he would like do i think he did three rounds of like tumbling down these steps they Wait, co- he actually yes. well they they covered the steps with um i think it was a two inch rubber mat but even so he could have broken his I neck know, i know the fuck i know um and these like these steps are really like they're narrow they're uneven um it's like a hard concrete stone um they're really steep as well and nowadays georgetown sports teams use them for conditioning and like i've run up and down them a couple times and like these steps are no joke but they become like an official dc landmark which is kind of cool but the story behind them is not not as fun (laughs) um but what's so incredible about this movie and i think part of why i love it so much is that just as a piece of cinema like it, I'm not a, a cinephile, I'm not a movie buff, but like this movie was made before CGI and like really complex special effects were a thing. So everything you see in the movie was done with a practical effect or like a prop. Mm-hmm. So there's not, you know, when they, when Reagan's head spins all the way around, that's like a, a robotic dummy that they made. So it's, it's fake, but it's happening in real life. The projectile vomiting is all, I mean, she's not vomiting, but like that's real. She had tubes hooked up to her body to like make that come out. When her body is being thrashed around in the bed, this poor Linda Blair, this cute little girl, the actor was like strapped to this board and she was like flung around. Didn't she like break her arm or something or like? She, I think she definitely. She got injured. Yeah, she got injured. Her mom also, um, in the the scene where the the dresser is being kind of flung around in the room and the Mm -hmm. mom. it's being flung around as well. She broke her back in that scene because the directors who were filming it um, or who were in charge of the scene basically, like, shoved her 
and they were like, we're going to make this as realistic as possible. And so when you see her screaming in those scenes, that's because she like broke, her back. broke her back. Oh and my it was God. like all to get like the perfect shot for the movie. <laughs> Do it for the gram. <laughs> oh God. Um, so all the, yeah, all the practical effects in this movie are just, it's just incredible. It'd be interesting to see like, you know, if they remake The Exorcist mm-hmm. now, like what their effects would be and like how different it would look. I know. I feel like it would not be as good. Like, I think technically it might look more realistic in some ways, but yeah. no, no, it would probably be like, like with the new Halloween movies. Let, yeah. Let's talk about the 2018 one because the most recent one was trash, <laughs> Yeah. but like how it was, it was really good and it brought all of this like new current like how they do gore now Mm -hmm. in movies um so it was just like halloween but like modernized i feel like that's how yeah the exorcist would be it wouldn't be as good as the original obviously but it 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 could be could be good yeah i'd be fascinated to see a remake i think it could either be really good or like really bad (laughs) yeah Um, but so beyond this many people thought that the exorcist set itself was cursed um whether this is all just strange coincidence, I don't know, but a lot of things happened while filming this movie and to people associated with the movie that I'm just going to run through right now. Um, two actors passed away before the film premiered in 1973. Um, one of the actors played a film director in the movie. That's why Reagan and her family were in D.C. Her mom was an actor and she was making a movie. So the producer in the movie passed away, and I believe the priest's... Um, mother passed away before the film could premiere in 1973 the actor who played the priest yeah the actor who played the priest his mom that his um his mom in the movie passed away oh okay. so two actors wait his mom in the movie who also dies in the movie because yeah. didn't you say yeah you said reagan uses her voice right mm-hmm. and she actually died mm-hmm. oh my god i know um the numerous cast and crew had family members who passed away tragically during the movie's production. Uh, the actor who played that main priest in the movie got into a near fatal motorcycle accident while filming. Um, one of the actors, whose name was Paul Bateson, was convicted of murder and served <laughs> 24 years oh in prison before being released on parole in 1990. And then finally, this is the one that really makes me believe it was cursed. The set for Reagan's family home burned down um, while they were filming, causing huge production problems. But interestingly enough, the only room on the set that survived the fire was the bedroom where the exorcism <gasps> scenes took place. I know. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> like, I, there's, I don't understand how a whole set could burn down and just that one place not be touched. Intervention. I know. Of a spiritual kind. <laughs> so the movie had obviously a lot of really bad energy surrounding it and when it premiered it caused a huge stir um i mean the public had never seen anything like this before it was wildly popular it was um incredibly graphic for the time i mean especially the urination the vomiting stuff alone the the scene with the crucifix and i was gonna say that i think that was probably the most jarring for a lot of people yeah i mean i'm even i'm thinking it's like i'm envisioning in my head now and she's saying I don't want to say it, but I think it'll add. She's saying, let Jesus fuck you. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's bad. Because, okay, that came out in the in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. And do you remember when Madonna came out with her music video where she was masturbating with a cross? No. Yeah. Wait, is this for Like a Virgin? Wait. What's I, don't, I, was, I, I don't know <laughs> what music video it was for, but that wouldn't 
make sense, I guess. But anyway, she had a music video that came out where she was doing that, or or at least doing something sexual with a crucifix, and Mm -hmm. obviously she got a lot of backlash for that. And that happened in the 80s, so I can't imagine... Yeah. What people's reactions were in the 70s to that. Yeah. That, that is one of the more <laughs> disturbing parts of that whole exorcism scene. Um, but there were reports nationwide of people fainting and vomiting in the theaters. People were so taken aback with what they had watched. Um, people left the theaters early because they were so upset and so disturbed by how intense the movie was. Um, allegedly, when the film premiered in Rome, lightning struck the top of the theater, which, you know, Rome... That's a Catholic place. Um, so to put yes. it lightly, you know, the home of the Vatican and all that. Um, so, yeah, this movie had a lot of bad energy. And I'm going to choose to believe that it was, in fact, cursed. Yeah. Because it's more fun Me to too. believe that. And also, like, I'm sorry, the fire thing. Just I don't see any other explanation for that. Yeah. Um, but I, I'll give my little review of The Exorcist. I think it's great. I think it's one of my favorite movies ever. It's certainly one of my my favorite horror films. It's not the scariest one. That award goes to Hereditary. Yes. Which is just makes you feel ill. Yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I... I identify myself as a Christian, but I I don't go to church every weekend, but I went to church the day after I watched that movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Hereditary (laughs) is no joke. Um, So The Exorcist isn't on that level, but I just think it's the story is incredible. It's so well done. When you think about how everything is done with like practical effects and props in the 70s, it makes me appreciate it that much more. Mm -hmm. And um, it's one of my favorites. It's on Netflix now, guys. I'm probably going to watch it tomorrow because I haven't seen it in years. Yeah, I rewatched it this year for the first time in a little while. And I want to watch it. It's so good. And even if it's not that scary... Like, it's, no, it's yeah. so good. It's, I think it'd be scary if you were watching it home alone in your basement at night. Like, that'd be pretty scary then. Yeah, but I'm going to watch it tomorrow in the day. <laughs> Live text me your reactions. I will. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the real life story of The Exorcist. Background on the book, the movie, the premiere, and how it impacted the world. Wow. There you go. That was great. Yeah. Well, guys, that that wraps another episode of us telling our stories and our ramblings. Um, but that brings us to our next segment. Paranormal protection tip of the week. So where did we find these? We found like a, a string of of tips. Yeah. From was it Yahoo? It was I think Yahoo? it was Yahoo, but it was, it was like a Yahoo article. It's like specifically like travel tips Mm -hmm. right to like keep spirits at bay while you're traveling but but the one we're going to talk about today can can be any anywhere it doesn't have to be when you're traveling but um it's about the use of salt so we actually had a listener comment on one of our instagram um posts asking if salt actually works um for you know, the paranormal and, you know, I, I can't say whether it does or not, but, um, I have often thrown salt over my left shoulder when I've spilled it mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm still doing great. She's, she's, she's alive. She's I'm, not possessed. I'm thriving. <laughs> um, but basically the, the tip is to sprinkle salt on the entrances of your home. Um, this is said to keep, keep out 
the bad spirits. There's an old belief that throwing salt over your left shoulder would protect you from bad luck. And this comes from the belief that the devil is always standing behind you and throwing salt distracts him from interfering in your life. I never knew that. I didn't either, but it doesn't seem like it takes much to distract him. (laughs) But, you know, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, Salt has also been traditionally... um, been a protective agent in non-Christian religions, which postulate that its purity will repel and protect from ghosts and evil spirits. There you go. When in doubt, salt it out, folks. And on that, that ends our, that ends our, uh, our episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to those who are tuning in. Um, reminder, we are on Instagram, so give us a follow. Um, we are, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Um, tell a friend. Yeah. Give us the five-star rating on Spotify. I already gave us a rating. I did, too. <laughs> if, you, if you're one of those people that listens to Apple Podcasts, <laughs> then you can actually leave us a review. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah, so you can give us that five-star, but also write a little comment reviewing our podcast. Yeah. Um, and you can send us an email at our Gmail. It's dfwg podcast yes at gmail.com gmail. and you can if you have your own encounter that you want to send us yeah we'd love to hear it and mm-hmm. and read it on the podcast yeah or if you want to record it even yeah, better like my coworker. yeah that was great, great. i love oh, oh, blast, blast. <laughs> see uh, guys your life example <laughs> uh but yeah love love hearing from you guys so um yeah okay. Well, that's, that's it for this this time. Yeah. Ho- hopefully, if we won't have any other more interruptions, oh and we will speak to you guys in two weeks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Um, like I said, when in doubt, salt it out, and always stay away from Ouija boards. Bye. Bye, guys.